Hello folks, you're listening to the High Performance Human Podcast and I'm your host, Simon Ward. Before we get into today's show, I'd like to talk about what it means to be a high performance human. It's got nothing to do with how fast you swim, bike or run. It has got everything to do with your sleep, nutrition, physical activity, personal relationships, your work habits and so much more. If these are areas that you'd like to improve on, we would love to help you. I currently have availability to take on a small number of clients and Beth, my wife, who's a certified life coach, also has some availability. So depending on what you're looking to focus on, we have you covered and you can find details in the show notes below. All right, on to today's guest. Dr. John Hellemans is a well-known sports medicine doctor, triathlon coach and author based in Christchurch, New Zealand. He's coached a large number of internationally successful triathletes and he's fostered New Zealand's global reputation in the sport of triathlon. He's contributed to the wider sports community as a medical director for Triathlon New Zealand, Athletics New Zealand and as a medical officer for a number of sports academies, training centres and New Zealand triathlon teams competing at international events. In addition to his coaching, John's an accomplished triathlete. He was World Masters Triathlon Champion eight times between 1994 and 2012 and an elite tri representative for New Zealand at the Commonwealth Games where triathlon was an exhibition sport. As a person who's been around in triathlon scene since the very spot and very much engaged in the New Zealand endurance community, we have an interesting chat about the training methodology of New Zealand legend coach Arthur Lydiard, a well-noted fan of polarised training. We talk about the concept of the basic week, strength training for endurance athletes. Oh, by the way, there's a spoiler here. He's not a big fan. Heart health for endurance athletes, coaching philosophies, and as a Masters Triathlon World Champion, John also outlines his approach to training and how that's changed in his later years. So, if you're ready, please take your marks and let's go. Yeah, so your name first came to my attention, John, oh, many, many years ago through another friend of mine, Chris Jones. Chris was the first director of performance or team manager for British Triathlon. And I remember him yeah. sharing a story about City sitting around with yourself and and there must have been another couple of coaches there and you were talking about if you gave a 20-week program to a group of athletes just a very simple program how, how much success they would have you know and some would fly on it and do everything and others would make excuses about not doing it but you know it was initially it's all about the basic program yeah I don't remember that to be honest but <laughs> sounds like an interesting discussion well I did was, was Ben Bright part of that as well he may have been, yeah. I don't know if Ben Ben came onto the scene a bit later in Great Britain. Um, yeah, okay, yeah, yeah. But I think you were probably at a World Championships or somewhere, and like as Chris likes to do, having a having a beer or a glass of wine to to chat about things into the small yeah. hours. Challenge concepts. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, listen, um, you were you were absolutely right. I, I put a lot of questions in my little. Uh, um, discussion topics list and it could take a whole weekend of podcasts to cover that so I, I have been thinking about those uh, those topics and it made me think that you how old are you now John if you don't mind me asking I'm 70 you're 70 and you're, st- yeah. you're still you're still competing right oh I try and do one or two races a year but um uh, it's uh, I've I've become a participant rather than a, uh, a competitor. Well, but um, you're still yeah, you're still I'm taking sort of... you're still taking part, and that puts you at the still at the front of the race of life, I guess. 
compared to most 70-year-olds? The, the last race I did um, was the um, New Zealand Sprint Champs in New Plymouth. I had to be there for a meeting anyway. So I made a last-minute decision to to compete. Uh, I hadn't done a lot of preparation. And my good friend, Shorty Clark, um, had won the World Championships in the 70-plus the year before uh, in Abu Dhabi. So I thought I'd give him a run for his money, but um, he put me well into my place. And uh, <laughs> and uh, I came second to last, you know, out of three. <laughs> so I'm second overall. The older you get, yeah, <laughs> that's right. The older you get, uh, um, the more drop by the wayside. Well, you, you, you're still participating, and that's the main thing. And in order to participate, you still got to be working out regularly, which which... I guess puts you um, puts you in a different category to the majority of the population. Certainly in the United Kingdom, I guess probably in New Zealand as well. Um, and I, I mean, I'm I'm reaching sixty next year, and I've become way more interested now in longevity and still being able to do what I love than I have necessarily in in competing. And so when I when I meet folks like yourself, I, I feel like it's really it'd be really interesting exercise to pick your brains and find out what what you. What you still do that you used to do when you were younger? What what things you've sort of had to cast aside, and what and what things you've started doing in order to maintain this love of uh, of exercising, working out, and participating? Um, and I guess that that'll enable us to talk around some of those other things that I talked about, like the, getting the basic wheat right, building capacity, sort of, uh, the sort of Lydiard concepts, and uh, things like strength training. So, um, yeah. does, that, does that sound it's, okay? It's interesting. It's interesting you should say that because you're quite right. I now exercise for health. That's my main motivation, really. Um, so I've always had a real interest uh, in exercise for health uh, because of my medical background. Um, I've lectured in the topic at the University of Otago. It's always been close to my heart. I've always uh, taken um, uh, exercise histories from my patients, any patient who would come to the door, you know, what do you do to stay fit? And so I've had a lot lifelong interest. Um, and I've sort of learned the difference between exercise for competition, training for competition, exercise for health. Um, there are some overlap, but not really a lot. So um, it's been, I've been fascinated with the differences and um, what it takes to stay healthy and what it takes to be competitive. Yeah, and I think we we should all think that human human health and performance comes before athletic performance, doesn't it? Because you can't be a if you can't be a high performing athlete until you're a, unless you're a high performing human and have robust health. Well, that's correct. Um, but in saying that, um, of course, you need to be healthy. But uh, when you're high performing athlete you also put your health at risk mm-hmm. um you know so there is side effect um and to be a high performance athlete and stay safe um is quite a fine balance really mm. you had an interesting conversation with an athlete the other day that was telling me they'd they wanted to start doing some fasted work they'd read they'd read a book by a doctor who said that fasting and intermittent fasting was good for your health and he felt like he needed to improve his health, but but at the same time he was training thirty hours a week. So it's a bit yes. of a bit 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 of a paradox there for him. Yeah, it's a bit like the the high fat, low carbohydrate diet, which has been popular, 
you know, with endurance athletes for a while, but not so much anymore because the, they worked out. It's not good for their health and especially not good for their performance. You know, mm. there's there's the old except, uh, exception, um, but uh, <laughs> we need energy when we use energy. Yeah, well, Dr. Dan Plews, who's uh, a colleague of yours out there in New Zealand's a big fan of low-carb, high-fat, isn't he? But I, I think Dan's probably moved his position a little bit from when he first started experimenting with that. I believe he has. I haven't had any recent discussions with him about it, but um, I've heard that he's more selective in when he uses the the uh, low-carb, high-fat diet, and that especially around competition and heavy training, he introduces carbohydrates. So I'm pleased to hear that. Yeah, I, get, I think... You know, somebody somebody like yourself or like Dan who who understands all the, the little nuances and intricacies of manipulating diet um and then are guiding athletes, um, it's probably a lot healthier for those people that, that, that you and Dan are working with than for, than people who just read about low carb, high fat in the popular press and decide to apply it and don't and then don't understand about how you need to manipulate it when you're doing the heavy training. That's when things get out of hand. Yeah, I think um, if you have a sports science or sports medicine background, it does help because you do understand. Um, sometimes it's also easy to overcomplicate things, um, but in in general, it's helped me a lot as a coach to to have a, a background in sports medicine. Yeah, mm. I think the more the more people like yourself that I speak to, John, and um, from around the world, the, the more I realise that. If we keep things simple in in training, in nutrition, in recovery, and and just get really good at doing those simple things, we're we're actually going to get about ninety percent of the way to the goals that we have, uh, regardless yeah, of whether quite. we are regardless of whether we are a weekend warrior or an elite athlete. Yeah, it's it's not it, it's not rocket science, and um, actually the, the the basic formula is very simple, and the the athletes are always interested in the top end, you know, the the, the extra bits. Mm-hmm. But they first have to get the basics right. And those basics are, are your training, your nutrition, and your mental attitude. If you get those three things right, you're 95% there. Um, and then perhaps you can look at uh, altitude training or supplementation or experimenting w- with um, – with training, different training methods, mm. but that I always bring them back to the basics, and the basics are relatively boring. Yeah. Yes, I was listening to another coach, Alan Cousins, who's in in Colorado, and he said, you know, the thing that marks out the elites is that they are pretty good at monotony and boredom. Yeah, you're right. It's it's the ones who um, who can uh, who can be repetitive and don't get bored by them. And also the ones who are happy to uh, train by themselves and not need other athletes around them, those are the ones as well who um, who usually come through. Um, so you need to to be able to do solitary training um, and as well as be consistent with repetition. Mm. So let, let's have a rewind a bit, John. Um, I was doing a, a little bit of research into yourself and, and came across this post that you'd written about training with um the New Zealand team you I think you were 36 was it was it the 1996 Commonwealth Games when in New Zealand is that right uh 1990 1990 in Auckland 
Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. And you were yeah. training and you were right on the cusp. You had some health problems, which meant that you didn't perform as well in the selection race. Is that right? I, I fell in, in in a very obvious trip where um, I got very, very fit uh, through the winter months. And then uh, the, the Commonwealth Games were three months away. Our selection races were coming up. So I thought I'll take some time off work so I can get even fitter. Mm-hmm. And and I dug myself a hole. One morning, woke up with a sore throat. I thought it will go away if I take it easy for two or three days, which I did. Sore throat didn't go away. I thought I'm going to lose my fitness. I better get back training, which I did. Didn't perform very well in training. So I thought I have to train harder. I've lost my fitness. And so um, I I dug myself a a real hole, Uh, only scraped through the selection of races and and got selected, but uh, only just. And at the Commonwealth Games, it was like a nightmare. It was like I was going in slow motion. So, um, yeah, that was a good lesson. Um, Mm -hmm. And, you know, I I see it happening in in other athletes. Mm -hmm. And with the athletes I coach, I can usually – in, in interfere and on time and uh and be reasonably firm with them but um i didn't have a coach at the time um so that was my trip i think every athlete needs to have a coach um you know including the athletes who know that they think they don't need a coach were you were you coaching back at that time or were you were you entirely focused on your own sort of triathlon performances? No, I was coaching. Yeah, yeah. I, I was coaching. Um, uh, I was still, well, advising probably Aaron Baker. And there was other athletes I was coaching. Um, you know, some of the athletes who were at the Commonwealth Games as well. So there was a junior division as well at the time. Mm-hmm. So, no, I was still pretty thick in, in the coaching. So, in, listeners might be interested to hear that somebody – you know, as knowledgeable and as experienced as yourself as an athlete and as a coach still was able to fall into that trap that less knowledgeable and experienced people fall into. Yeah, I think it's it's like with doctors, you know, when they get sick, they don't take much notice and they're <laughs> going back to their office. And I think coaches who are athletes, um, they're, they're, they are at risk just as much as, as anyone else in the population. You, you know, we, we need mentors especially when when there's pressure when there's distractions um so we're we're all humans um and and we fall into the same traps perhaps even more so because we think we know mm. yeah so back in 1990 then you you've obviously been in triathlon for a while to get to that level what what were you doing before you started triathlon did you come from a running background or were you a swimmer um I was a swimmer and water polo player when I grew up in, mm-hmm. in Holland. Um, and uh, when I came to New Zealand in 1978, that was the time that triathlon sort of hit the world more or less. You know, So the first triathlon in New Zealand was held in the year I came to New Zealand. And I, uh, I ended up seeing a, a clip on the television, on the news. I still remember clearly that... Um, there was this novel event held in Auckland, a swim, bike, run, and my ears pricked up because I um, I had been a competitive swimmer, water polo player. Uh, at the time, I was running with the Marlboro Harriers uh, in 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 Marlboro and in, in Blen. I was worked as a house surgeon in in the Wairau Hospital in Blenheim, 
And so there wasn't a water polo club. So I ended up running with a local Harriers club. So I, and I was doing all right um, as a runner. And every Dutchman can ride a bike. So I thought combining those three to me made so much sense. And I thought I'd love to do that one year. But I was busy with my career and um, we were getting married and having families. So, but it stayed in the back of my mind. And every year this clip came back up and uh, on TV. And in 1982, I managed to go up to Auckland and actually do it. Um, and I had no idea what to expect, but I ended up winning it by quite a large margin. And I worked out that the reason for that was that I probably was the only one who had prepared for the event because most of the competitors were sort of lifesavers or swimmers or runners who look for a challenge or some, uh, you know, additional training, but they didn't take it serious. For them, it was a challenge. I was one of the first one who probably thought, well, you know, I'm good at the three disciplines, all three disciplines. That was the only difference. The, the, the other difference that the other athletes were only good in one or two disciplines. But I mastered them all already because I was a bit older and I'd been uh, au fait with the three disciplines. So, um, and winning, you know, is is um, is quite addictive. Um, so I en- ended up entering some more triathlons which spread over the country and, and doing reasonably well. So that was my entry into triathlon. It gave me a second sporting career because I'd been reasonably serious about swimming and water polo. It never made the top. I was a provincial champion, but never a national champion. Um, so I'd sort of more or less given up on that. One of my dreams as a swimmer was always that I wanted to win a national championships a title. Um, and suddenly here I was in this new country, New Zealand. And um, I, I was a national champion, you know, in a new sport. So um, to me, I, I was greatly motivated with that. And it made me consider how I could manage another sport reasonably seriously with my career mm. and, and having a young family. So that became the challenge for the next 10 years or so for me. Mm. Well, New Zealand's got a, a great history of endurance athletes. Uh, if I think back to... The 60s, the 50s and 60s, Mr. Arthur Lydiard was very popular and very successful with his athletes in the 60s there, certainly in middle distance running. And, yes. uh, um, you know, that sort of maybe Lydiard isn't isn't a name that's familiar for a lot of people these days, but certainly polarised training and 80-20 training has become very, very popular over the last few years. Um, and I know a lot of the, the older coaches will say, yeah, but that's nothing new, you know. This was around in the 50s and 60s. It's just been repackaged. Um, did you did you apply sort of Lydiard style training methodology to your um, approach back back then back in the sort of early eighties when you were training for triathlon? Yeah, so in the early eighties, we had no idea how mm. to train for um, for triathlon for putting three disciplines together. Most people thought it was a, a an out there sport. It was mm. not really mainstream, uh, just for some fitness fanatics. And nobody knew how to prepare. Um, and it, it was at the time that I met Aaron Baker as well, and I can um, ex- expand on that if uh, later if you like. But we sort of became uh, partners in in the crime of finding out how to train for those events. And she had a great vision at the time. She was winning races, and she said to me, "I want to do this. I want to do this professionally." 
um, you know, can you can you help me with some ideas how how I should go about this? And so I looked at um, at other endurance sport basic training principles. Um, I knew what I had done as a swimmer. Um, I had the honor of of meeting Arthur Lydiard and being able to to pick his brain, talk to him. I read up on his theories and on his um, training methods. Um, I studied other sports as well. I st- I went to netball games, to rugby games, mm. to see how coaches operated. Um, because what I did realize when I came to New Zealand in 1978, and I observed how they applied themselves to sport, any sport, suddenly a light went on in my brain. And I thought, oh, this is how you do it. Mm-hmm. I'd grown up in in Holland where things were reasonably we were reasonably spoiled as athletes. Um we tended to have other interests and um you know the, like in Holland the technical sports are are doing very well that's their strength the technical analysis mm-hmm. and they have a great structure in their sport but the kiwis they're tough you know and they don't cut corners and they are passionate about sports. So when I came in New Zealand and I thought, oh, this is how you do it, and I started to apply that to my own training, and it worked. And I saw Aaron Baker at work, and this is how she trained, how all most Kiwis trained. So I learned a lot from observing other sports and from observing how New Zealand sport operated. Um, so that that provided me with the basics. Um, and then I talked to Arthur Lydiard. I think he's been misunderstood a lot, um, but the, 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 I slowly learned that indeed consistency uh, is important, volume is important, and the only way you how you can combine the two is to do mainly aerobic training, you know, with a bit of sprinkling of intensity mm. closer to um, race time. Um, but... Uh, and that's still the basis for me. Um, I, I'm not sure about paradise training where you do the 80-20. I, I don't quite get that because when we're out training, you know, we we, we need to go to the different zones. Um, sometimes you have to because of the terrain. Um, sometimes you feel good. And so you also have to train as you feel. And we have to do some training around our training pace, um, and but we need to do that safely as well. So if you train just below your uh, racing pace, you're still aerobic, but you get the the, the muscular adaptations which you need uh, by you know by going at pace. So you know the the, the purely periodized training, easy and hard. I think there's a lot more to it than that. It's not that simple. No, I I think. You know, when you look at the Steven Seiler research, he he looked at what people were doing and it just happened. So it split up in like that 80-20 type thing, didn't it? Rather than those folks yes. going out and deliberately trying to allocate different intensities to those zones and having 80% here and 20% there. And I agree. It also yeah. depends where you live. I, I live in Yorkshire. So, <laughs> you know, to, to, when, I, when I go out running, I can run along by the canal and it's nice and flat. But if I want to deviate from that, I'm going uphill. So it's, it's pretty difficult to keep my training zone um in in you know down at number two um equally when i go out on my bike if i want to go anywhere i'm faced with a a 12 percent hill 
<laughs> within the first yeah. two or three minutes. So my heart rate's already up near my threshold by the time I get to the top. Um, so very difficult yeah. to have a, a purely um, low intensity training. Um, but I, I'd just like to rewind to that point you made there. What um, You mentioned that you thought Lydiard had been misunderstood. Can you expand on that a little bit? Yeah, well, people thought he yeah, it was mainly volume, so mainly mm. easy, steady training. But his long runs, they were tough. You know, they, they were on hilly terrain, and they were zone one, two, three, sometimes zone four, even. they you know, when, when you're really fit as an athlete, you, you drift into zone four, even on a long run, you can do that. And as long as you don't do it for too long, and as long as you don't go into zone five, um, it, it's it's all right to do that, um, but you know, true. It's true to say that it was mainly zone two, a bit drifting into zone three, um, where the volume sessions were were done. But he also did a lot of um, uh, we call it now plyometrics, and he called it hill bound bounding. You know, so mm-hmm. he did some fast uphill um, hill bounding exercises, knee lifts strides up a gentle hill and he did also some fast downhill running running oh, so okay. some over over speed running on a gentle downhill for, to develop leg speed so those drills were a pretty important part of his plan and he would incorporate it in his programs two or three times a week um and and this is not often mentioned um and i personally i'm reasonably keen on Apply metrics as a supportive method for, in particular, for running. Um, and not a lot of triathletes do it, but the triathletes I coach, I, I expose to, I expose to plyometrics. Mm. Yeah, I've had a, I've had a, a number of conversations recently with with some coaches where we talked about plyometrics. So, I, th- I think there is. I'm not sure if there's a groundswell of popularity for plyometrics because, again, I think it's misunderstood and I think some of the stuff that I see programmed is unnecessary for endurance athletes. It doesn't need to be, yeah. you know, it doesn't need to be jumping off the three-foot high box and trying to bound back up again. That's 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 totally different. But, I, you know, even, even uh, two or three minutes of skipping is good for activation and is the sort of plyometrics you need to get that ping and spring through the, you know, the, the foot and ankle complex. Um, yeah. So what what really got me going with plyometrics, um, I had an initial interest and I thought, ah, it probably doesn't apply to triathlon. We're an endurance sport. Uh, We stay low to the ground. And then I met um, Seppo Nutella. I don't know if you've heard of him. He was the coach for um, Pauli Curie, who um, won the Australian Ironman five times, I think, and was in Hawaii. He was second in Hawaii at least once. Um, perhaps even more often, uh, he was a very consistent Finnish athlete. And and Pauli Curie would come to New Zealand for several years to Christchurch to train. And his coach came over once as well, um, Seppo Nutella. He had also been the coach for um, Parpenen, Parpenen, who won three gold medals in Olympic uh, single school rowing. And he had also been the coach of the Finnish soccer team and he was also the coach for the Finnish kayak team. And then he became the coach for Pauli Curie, an Ironman triathlete. So I was intrigued to meet this man and to discuss training with him. And I learned so much of him. And one of the things I learned is the plyometrics and how they apply plyometrics as part of, of their triathlon training program. 
which was a very simple circa program of eight exercises. And it takes about 20 to 30 minutes to go through it three or four times. And you can do it in the backyard. You can do it in the living room. I mean, him being Finnish, so they train six months of the year indoors. So they make sure that they can do it indoors. So a very simple program. And that's been sort of my staple diet, which I brought into sort of the triathlon uh, training program for the athletes I coach. And it's it's very effective. What's, what sort of exercises would be in that uh, routine then, John? You have um, uh, what we call uh, calf jumps, uh, which is uh, straight-legged jumps, so you keep your knees locked. Um, you have uh, knee tucks, so you tuck your knees, so you jump up, tuck your knees towards your chest, bounce back down, and immediately go back up. Um, you do burpees. Um, so and you alternate upper body exercises with lower body exercises, so you have a bit of recovery in between. You have what we call cross-country jumps, so the lunges, but instead of lunging, you you jump through them. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's different type of loadings you can do. Um, it's it's nothing complex. It's very basic circuit type of circuit training type of pro, uh, exercises, but very specific for running. Hmm. I mean, I'm always interested in upper body plyometrics. A little bit more difficult to apply, aren't they, for most people? Yeah, no. The, well, the upper body exercises are more like push-ups, and if ah, they okay. get really strong, they have a they have a weak clap or something like that. So that is more to unload hmm. the, uh, the, the 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 legs, really. So the emphasis is on the legs when we do the plyometric. You, you've mentioned a couple more things that I'm really interested in. I, I teach with some other tutors on what we call the high performing coaches program in the UK. So it's it's more about coaches improving their ability to understand athletes and about questioning and listening and all the, all the things that you might expect a, a high-level coach to do. Um, but it's not about the technical stuff. And one of the tasks that we assign for them in between weekends of teaching is to go and study other coaches, but to encourage them to go, and, if they can, to go and study other coaches from different sports or sometimes different fields so we've we've had some fantastic examples of we had one one chap who went to follow um, a team of firefighters and uh, paramedics um, and learning how they work together as a team and how they coached each other and how they each each person understood their role we had one one or two people who followed dressage coaches and the way that the the coach communicates with the with the rider but has to do it in a way that doesn't frighten the horse um, so yeah. you can't shout from the ringside. Uh, we've had people following ballet coaches and piano teachers, which is really interesting because that's teaching people yeah. the ba- basic skills to play little notes, not doing concert um, concert stuff. Um, so, so I love that. And as part of that, one of the things that I did was to go to visit a, um, a horse racing coach who did steeple jumps. I know, so not flat racing. And this chap yeah. lives in Yorkshire, so about an hour's drive from me. Um, he was one of the most successful steeplechase coaches of all time. And I went, I was a vet. So he, he loved and understood horses and their physiology. Um, yeah. What was really interesting to me was that the horses spent a lot of time walking on the hills to build leg strength, just walking. And he used to, he got, he got um, taken to task by a lot of the other re- um, trainers locally because he would walk his horses up to the gallops which is three miles whereas they always used to take them up in the in the trucks and then the horses would get out and then they would do the stuff up there and then 
the only high intensity exercise that those horses did each day, formal stuff, was to do two 800 meter gallops up an incline, three or 4%. So nothing that would put the horse out of its galloping technique and cause it to change gait. And 30 seconds for a racing horse at high, uh, sorry, 800 meters for a horse at high speed is probably about 30 seconds. So two 30 seconds all out sprints. And if you know horses, you know that they're competitive animals. So they like their pack animals. Yeah. So they like to race. And that was it. They, they'd sprint them up the hill, walk them very slowly back down in a circular route and then do it again. And that was it. And, and as I was listening to this, I kept coming back to polarized training, you know, most of the time at really low intensity, building strength, building volume. And then this little sprinkling, as you said, of high intensity work on a daily basis. And yeah. it, it was fascinating. You know, I, w- I went into the, 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 the sheds and all of these little indoor places where they had um, deep water recovery thing for the horses to go around in and all yeah. of these little techniques that we see athletes using now that they'd apply to horses. And it was absolutely fascinating to watch essentially a coach from a completely different sport applying very similar techniques in order to develop something for high performance. Yeah, no, I'm totally with you on that. And uh, I always love to communicate with other coaches. And I've, I've visited, you know, martial arts, black belt gradings, for example. Fascinating seeing coaches at work. Um, I have a particular interest also in team sports because I'm interested mm-hmm. in culture. You know, how how do you create a culture? Mm-hmm. Because triathlon has become a bit like that. It was very much an individual sport, but it's not anymore. It's become a team sport. Um, you know, we we are part of of a team, of a national team or a regional team, and um, and and um, we we don't do that very well. You know, the team aspect of our sport because it's so new. Um, so I'm fascinated to see. You know, like I live in Crusader lands. You know, the the Crusaders, yeah, who won the the Super Champs for the uh, was the seventh or eighth time. <laughs> yeah, and how, how they achieve that, and it's all related to their culture. So I talk to their coaches and see how they do that, and how can we translate it to our own sports? You know, what can we do? What mm. can I do with that information? And and um, how can we apply that to the New Zealand triathlon team? You know, and how can we help the coaches to to create and the athletes to create this culture? But um, it's a bit similar. You know, it's it's different. Um, from the individual approach and well for example horses have a very different physiology mm-hmm. than um than than humans have but still i still think seeing seeing them at work um you know i i remember uh, jack posta who won the silver medal at the, in the marathon in the uh, new zealand uh, games in um in christchurch uh, many moons ago he uh, said um he was he was uh, he put his legs under a tap. He had a hose. After the race, he found a hose and hosed his legs down. Mm-hmm. And the reporter asked him, "Why are you doing that?" And he said, "Well, he said the horse trainers do it, and what's good for horses is good for me." <laughs> was his reply. And so since then, all the runners in in New Zealand started to hose their legs down after every hard run they had, um, and it became quite fashionable for a while. I'll try and put a link to that in the show notes. This is, I always find it fascinating as well about how many of these lessons are we here and how many of these stories are sort of circular and they've, they've sort of 
they, they, they're sort of not stuff of legend, are they? They're just things that have been done before. So there's there's nothing new, really. There's just just things that are reinvented and become popular again, and then go yeah, out. Yeah, and they've been giving a different name. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. You're yeah. quite right. I'm at that age that I see that all the time. Well, and, I, I, uh, yeah. I remember that um, I used to work with a, as a, a strength conditioner for a rugby league team in the UK and and um, a cricket team, and we used to use um, the ladders and hurdles. That, that you see very popular now. And I'd got this from an athletics coach. And so I used to get wooden sticks like paint sticks and I just used to put them out um, on the ground and then get people to um, run between them. And then we used to have car tyres, of course. We suddenly found that car tyres weren't quite as effective when athletes got the foot stuck and turned an ankle. So I had to find something else. <laughs> but, you know, you've got the ladders now and you've got the little micro hurdles. And then I remember this chap coming over from America. He was, he'd was he worked in American football and he was a coach there, a speed coach, and he developed this system and he called it Speed Agility Quickness or SAQ. Yeah. And you can probably see books now. And then they put on a course and they told us that there was this fantastic new conditioning program for athletes to improve their ground speed. And I went along and uh, I asked the question, I said, but this is this new? I mean, surely athletics coaches have been doing this for years getting people to do yeah. these sorts of drills. No, this is speed, agility, quickness. It's different. So I took it back to the athletics club and showed it to this guy called Wilf Pace, who you might be familiar with. He was a, he's passed on now, Wilf, but he was an old-style coach. And he looked and he went, there's nothing new there, lad. We've seen it all before. And he was very dismissive. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, you know, the, the Americans claim that they invented brick training, you know, back-to-back training. Mm-hmm. Um, in the late 80s. But Aaron Baker and I had been doing that from the early 80s. And we didn't call it brick training, but we would run to the pool, have a swim and, and run back home. We we bike to the hills and run in the hills and then bike back home. And, you know, that was brick training, but we didn't call it that. Um, all our friends thought we were crazy to, to combine those disciplines, um, but we did it, you know. And so... Uh, <laughs> And then it was re- reinvented as brick training by the Americans. Well, the, the fell runners um, over here in Yorkshire used to cycle to the next village to do the to the do the races at the country fair, and then cycle back again. Usually after oh, they'd cool. had a couple, usually after they'd had a couple of beers, so they added an extra element in there, which was alcohol. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah we we wouldn't go that far. No, we were too serious for that. So let, let's yeah. let's go back then, John, and talk about um, when I was talking to Gordo Byrne, who was uh, the person who introduced us and um, who speaks very highly of you. Um, and I know you've done a lot of articles um, for Gordo's little um, Substack thing. He, he was talking about this basic week concept, which we sort of touched upon about getting the getting the simple things right. So, and he talked about them getting two. You either get. Twos, so you do two session, two swim, two bike, two run, or three swim, three bike, three run, or four swim, four bike, four run, and that's that's the initial template for folks. Can you just he, he attributed that to you? So can you expand on that a little bit for me? Well, yeah, I mean it's a three discipline sport, and a few transitions thrown in there as well. But it's basically three disciplines. So you want to um, you want to design a program where you uh, become a accomplished in all three disciplines. Now, uh, basically, um, if you want to get fit and you start from a baseline, 
but uh, you're technically okay with the three disciplines, you would start doing two or three sessions per discipline per week. Um, if you come from a, a, a background of running or a background of cycling um, or swimming, you could change that. And, and for example, if you're an ex-swimmer, you might not swim at all or just swim once a week if you just for your mental health, perhaps. And you might bike two or three times a week and run two or three times a week. But you have a template which suits you, your personality, or you know, um, and you follow that and you make that a progressive template. So if you st start from nothing, it'd be two or three sessions per discipline per week with variations depending on your backgrounds. And then you build on that and you might do your first triathlon based on a program like that. And then you progress from there and you might then start to build up to four disciplines per week if you want to be uh, per, uh, four sessions per discipline per week if you want to be more competitive. For a, a working person uh, who has a family who wants to be competitive, so we're talking about most age groupers, they tend to do really well with four sessions per discipline per week when they sort of spread it out over the week and they have some combination sessions. That is doable. That's between 10 and 15 hours a week. Uh, and if you play your cards right, that doesn't interfere with work or with family commitments too much. Um, so if you're going to do less than that, then you won't quite be that competitive. So you have to be happy with that you won't be that mm -hmm. competitive. If you're going to be more than that, you're mentally probably compromised recovery and you increase your risk of injury. So we know from research that doing four sessions in one discipline in a week with perhaps three aerobic sessions and one specific session which has some race space in it, mm. we know it gets you 90% 90, 90 fit in that particular discipline over time, over a period of time. So if you do that, apply the principle to the three disciplines and you get 90% fit in the three disciplines, you're very competitive mm. as, as a triathlete. And the elites need to be 95% fit in the three disciplines. So they need to do five or six sessions per discipline. And but they immediately um add risk to that. But they also most of them are professionals, so they have more time for recovery, more time to look after the bodies. So they get away with it a lot of the time. But you you need to have a bit of a template you start with. And I usually would write that out on a piece of paper initially, um, Monday all the way through to Sunday um, and on the top swim, bike, run. And I sit down with the athletes and say, okay, when are we going to do those sessions? And you take into the consideration their other commitments, their work and the family. Everybody works differently. Some athletes prefer to train later in the day. Other athletes want to train early in the morning. So you all you need to take those personal preferences into consideration when you design that template. So the athlete needs to have a say in that as well. Um, and it's surprisingly effective because once the template is in place and you've had that initial discussion, rather than just working off a program which comes, you know, which you print off from somebody from the internet, you once you have made it personal and you personalized it, it becomes a lot more doable. So mm -hmm. it, it makes sense to the athletes and they're more motivated to comply it's easier for them to comply mm. and and so you start with with that template 
which is individualized to the specific needs of the athlete. Yes, and that, Does that makes sense. Oh, ab- absolutely makes sense, mm. and it, it it sort of harks back to what we we discussed earlier. Um, getting the basics right, um, doing things regularly so you build consistency. Mostly, this zone one, zone two, some zone three sprinkling of high intensity, whether that's sort of governed by the terrain or governed by you know going to a club session and doing sort of swim intervals this week. Um, I know Gordo talks about having this basic week and then just having one race per week. So one week you could do a cyclocross race during the winter, another or a Zwift race, another week you could do a, a park run or um, a 5K. And so you can, you if you just get that regular sprinkling of intensity in there of a small amount, but get the basics right and get your technique right. I think that's overlooked with a lot of people is that, you know, certainly for swimming and running, it seems to me that actually if you can make yourself more economical and more efficient, um, you might get better results because it's kinder on your body, but you move, you can still move forward at a decent velocity. On in, in cycling, I think you can you can still apply the principles of, of sort of um, you know hard workouts. But I think swimming and swimming and running are overlooked in terms of technical efficiency for a lot of people. Yeah, you're quite right. And the non-swimmers, they dislike swimming with a passion. So they often miss sessions, they make it a low priority, and they think they will just nurse themselves through it and focus on the biking and the running, which which they enjoy more. Mm. And so if they want to be competitive, then they have to do the work in the swimming, and also in particular, they have to find a coach. Swimming, you can, if you're a non-swimmer, you can't learn to swim by yourself. You need someone Mm. on the side of the pool, not all of the time, but some of the time to give you feedback. And for cycling, um, I encourage to spend for for non-cyclists to spend time with cyclists and go out in bunch rides and and observe them how they sit on their bike mm. and um, what cadence they use, um, how they play with their gears, and also join the local races. You learn so much. It's not only really good training, but you also become technically. Yeah, uh, very good. Just by observing all the cyclists just sitting on their wheel, running also running. If you're a non-runner, often you you need some feedback as well. So mm. um, if you're serious about wanting to improve your running, it's good to spend a bit of time with a running coach. Um, you know, I I did gait analysis all the time. Running is probably one of my favorite uh, disciplines to coach within the triathlon. Um, Swimming, I leave to the swimming coaches these days. And uh, cyclist, I think we will mix with the cyclists, and that's how you learn. Mm-hmm. And running is is what I'm really interested in. Also, because of my medical background, I see a lot of uh, uh, running-based injuries uh, also you know, through other sports. So I always do gait analysis. I always look at patients and see how they run. I always take them outside. And so, and I always have little hints for them, little tips I can give them, which can make a real difference. So I've learned that, you know, for running, you also need a coach if you're a non-runner just to give you a bit of feedback. Back to your point on mixing with cyclists. I started out in triathlon in 1986, so a little a little bit later than I'm... you, but I, I recognize <laughs> that that um, commentary from earlier about there, there was just nobody around. So it was uh, trial and error and with a lot of errors. Um, and uh but i joined i joined a cycling club and i went out with these guys and uh 
you know, these these are old chaps that have been riding for years. And they just say things, little things to you like, oh, you need to change gear there. Too, you're pedaling too yeah. hard. You're pedaling too fast. You're pedaling too slow. Sit here. Well, why do I sit there? Just sit here and do what I tell you, you know, sit there, stay out of the wind, sit there and do some work. Go at the front, go at the back. Don't ride too close, ride a bit closer. And you get shouted at and you feel like <laughs> feel like the new You've kid on the block. But after after a few weeks of being shouted at, you suddenly learn that, oh, if I sit here, if I do this, if I do that, everything becomes a lot easier. And so, uh, you know, I, I recognise exactly what you're saying there. But th- these days, I think if, if triathletes join cycling clubs, they're immediately obvious who they are because they, they've got no idea about how to sit on a wheel. They've got no idea about how to shelter from the wind. If they go to the front, they go running, riding off too hard and, and feel like it's their job to break everybody. Um, they don't, they don't, uh, I'll see people sitting at the back and then getting bored. So they'll shoot to the front, pedaling about 50 watts faster than everybody else. But then they, then they've gone off the front of the group and you can see all the cyclists shaking their heads. So, um, they're not used to working together either and sharing the workload when you're riding into a wind. So, um, yeah, there's a there's a there's an awful lot of riding skills again. I think that we we miss as triathletes because we feel it's an individual sport and we just need to put heads down and go hard. Um, I had an interesting experience where the, the the Kiwis generally are not very good bike riders. Um, you know, they don't grow up with riding a bike. So when they take up triathlon, that's really when they, and in, in their teenage years, if they're lucky or when they're older, um, they're technically not very good. So um, that's always been an, a point of attention for me when I coach those athletes. Someone like Andre Hewitt, I started to to coach when she was um, 22. She came to triathlon from Sea of Lifesaving. She could run and she, and she could swim, but she couldn't ride a bike. And the first time, she hopped on a bike. She just fell over. She had no idea. Um, so I had to start from scratch with her, and that was a good example of of a Kiwi, you know, never having ridden a bike. And so the, the Kiwi triathletes would pay a lot of attention on cycling technique. Then, then I in 2010, I was appointed coach of the Dutch triathlon team, and I went over to Holland to to meet them and to do some see what observe them training. And they were all superb cyclists. Mm. They're technically fantastic um, because they've been biking all their lives to and from school from a very young age. So technically, they were fantastic. Um, and they just had to get on the bike and, and do the training. Um, so they they have a real advantage. You know, and a lot of European, the Frenchies are a bit like that as well. Um, don't know how it is in Britain, but in particular, the Dutch, as you know, you know cycling is is part of, of of the culture. Um so yeah that was an interesting experience. Um so yeah I I, I think we're a lot better with cycling now. Um it's it, you know as as far as European countries go, cycling wasn't quite as high on the agenda as it perhaps was in Holland and France and Belgium where it's sort of like a religion, isn't it? If you if you go ever ever go to somewhere like Flanders and and around that area of northern France and Belgium, it's it is like a religion. And when they have the Tour of Flanders on it's like yeah. um, it's like cup final weekend, and the whole the whole place stops so they can watch that. Um, yeah, 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 yeah. What 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 are your um, what are your thoughts on strength training for endurance athletes, John? Are you are you a fan of this, or are you not, or is it is it really down to the individual and their specific needs and requirements? Yeah, um, to be honest, um, I tolerate it. <laughs> it's become part. It's been become. 
part of of for elite athletes. It's become part of their program. I, personally, I don't think that age group athletes who have a job and family, I think they're better spend their time swimming, biking, or running, um, and and build in some strength training in their swimming, biking, and running. You know, um, swimming with pedals and bands only, and mm-hmm. perhaps with, with some drag. Um, I think that's very specific strength for biking, doing some big gears once they get a bit fitter, mm-hmm. um, doing hill reps. Um, uh, obviously, um, I, I think, you know, there's nothing wrong with mountain biking to help your strength um, and running, running hills. And I've talked about the, the, the plyometric training, which I think is superb strength type of training for running. You don't have to do it in a gym. You can do it as part of your run when you do your warm up, you do your plyometric exercises out there, and then you carry on and do your main set or you carry on just doing your aerobic run. So um, I, I do believe in developing strength, but I think you, you can do most of it as part of your swim, bike, run um, training, really. Um, so there's, I, I'm not convinced that that lifting weights makes a hell of a lot of difference. Perhaps it helps a bit with um, injury prevention in athletes who are biomechanically challenged. Um, so I do believe in rehab. Uh, in the use of of gym equipment uh, for rehabilitation following injury, um, so yeah, I'm still a bit on the fence. But it's in our national program, a couple of times a week doing a gym program is now part of the program, and it's overseen by strength and conditioning coach. I'm tried to be in contact as much as I can with the SNC coach. They know my. Um, they know that I don't like heavy weights and they know that I'm happy with core exercises and happy with plyometrics and happy with light weights. Um, I'm happy if if the exercises mimic the, the movement more of swimming, biking and running, then I can see some sense in it. So um, all right, we'll 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 fit it in and perhaps we'll get a bit of benefit from it for some of the athletes. Okay, I, I mean that's interesting, I, and I understand completely of, of this link between does does this type of exercise have a direct link to improving performance? I, I know that's very very sketchy, and uh, I don't think anybody's been able to prove that one way or another. Um, I definitely think that you know because I have done a lot of work with the physiotherapists, both in shadowing them and understanding the work they do and how they work, and also as a patient sitting there getting treated and uh, understanding why I've got injured. And I know that whenever I go there, they always say, oh, well, it's because you're a little bit weak here and weak there. So what we're going to do is give you these exercises to strengthen up. Yeah. And if you'd done these exercises before, maybe you hadn't, end, you, you wouldn't have ended up on the couch. So um, I, I recognise that whole prehabilitation type of work. Um, but I also, we... we Earlier on in the discussion, we started talking about health and longevity as being the foundation for performance, um, and particularly as you and I are, are, are getting onto that older um, uh, stage of our life now. How do you feel about strength training as um, as an integral part of that health and longevity for older folks, and particularly older athletes, trying to counteract the aging process, if you like? Yeah. Okay. Let, let me come back to that, but first. Um, just going back to strength training for elite athletes, a, a good example is core training. You know, we all want our athletes to have strong cores, but 
often there is a mismatch between the strong core and how the athlete applies it mm -hmm. when they run, bike, and swim. So they need to be able to apply this, the strength they gain with their exercises into the movement of the swimming, biking, and running. So, um, and running is a very good example where you do need to use your core, but you need to use it in a certain way. So this, um, and what I often get athletes to do is, is to do some core exercises and then, so they know, they feel their abdominals and, and their glutes and so on. And then I get them running up and down the car park and and tighten up their core and, and see what the difference is. So they need to be able to apply it mm -hmm. to the disciplines. And I think that's where it's often a gap. Now, when we when we come to strength training and health, I have a, a different attitude because we, we know that in particular when we get older, then we lose strength even faster than we lose our aerobic ability, our aerobic strength. So, um, yeah, and there's more and more evidence, and that evidence is pretty clear that strength training will help us um, staying uh, fitter and healthier if we build it into our um, aerobic training. So I think for older people, we need we need to do both. And I now lift a few light weights, believe it or not. I don't really enjoy it, but I know it's good for me. So so I do it. Uh, mm. Besides my swimming, biking, and running. Um, so yes, no, you're right. Uh, when you're over fifty, introducing some structured strength training in your program by use of a gym or a gym at home makes sense. I had a, a conversation last week with Jason Coop, the ultra running coach, and Jason was saying, you know, I think I think it's important that we, you know, there are like two silos. One is 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 strength training directly linked to a gain in athletic performance. He said the jury's out on that one. But then if we take this other silo of is strength training linked to health benefits and certainly in older athletes, then I, I think the jury's probably in on that one. And there's a consensus that it's for the majority of people, there's a benefit to be had as long as you can find a way of working it into your life. And so that, that's that's the sort of uh, conundrum I'm often, I feel like I, we as coaches are often faced with, with that, as athletes is we, we'll get older athletes who come to us and say, there's no evidence that this is going to improve me as a triathlete, but you're 55 and there's a lot of evidence it's going to improve you as a human. And if you're a fitter human, then QED, you're going to be a fitter athlete. So, you know, it's a, yes. a roundabout <clears throat> way of getting to the, having it, having it included. Um, yeah, no, you're right. We, we, there is always this balance, isn't there? And we touched on it before between performance and health. And there is often a line which, you touched on before when you were training for the Commonwealth so where it's easy to cross and actually in the in the the race to improve our performance we then start to compromise our health um I know that you had your health, your own health problems and you wrote about that in your book um never ever give up um can we can we just talk a little bit about the costs versus benefits of triathlon training because outwardly it would seem like a a very healthy sport but you know, if we dig a bit deeper, we find that perhaps that's not always the case. Yeah. I, I think um, triathlon um, attracts a certain personality, like like any sport attracts a certain personality, and probably the the obsessive neurotic personality is attracted by triathlon, where you never never finish your training and um, you can always do more. Um, so. 
we need to take you know take that into account as well. And and I I found not very often that I have to motivate triathletes to train. I usually have to motivate them to train less. Um, and so that addictive aspect of triathlon is pretty much out there, but not talked about a lot. Um, so so there are, um, I, I do think that overall, the advantages outweigh the, the side effects. But we do need to recognize the side effects, including mental issues um, like eating disorders, mm-hmm. like depression, like anxiety. Um, I've lost two, um, three good mates um, in their 30s uh, through suicide, uh, mm-hmm. three young triathletes. Um, and so depression and anxiety is not uncommon. In the personalities of triathletes, yeah. Um, physically, we put our body under stress. We know now that you know we have more chance to develop arrhythmias, um, irregular um, heartbeats. Um, I experienced that myself, where I developed atrial fibrillation about ten years ago, and I've sort of been managing that. Um, so uh, there is uh, injuries. Um, I do think that we have, over time, an inflammatory response into our muscles. Some of us have that more than others. Mm. Um, And so we end up stiff, and no amount of stretching uh, seems to be able to prevent that. Um, So those are the sort of side effects. But I do think that overall, our sport is very healthy Mm. because it's covers, you know, almost all the muscles in our body. Um, I really like the fact that we combine an upper body exercise with the lower body exercises mm-hmm. and all the accessory muscles which we, you know, develop and, and train when we do the combination type of training, I think is very good for us. But we tend to probably overdo it as far as frequency, intensity is concerned. Um, so, yeah, we need to be aware of that yeah i i totally agree with with everything you say there john i i i've seen you know like you over the years and i've been been coaching for over 30 years now i've seen athletes that come into sport and that addictive behavior often and we've seen this in some professional athletes well documented you know lionel sanders was a drug addict and now he's an exercise addict you know it's just it's it's almost swapping one behavior for another but it's still in the same it's still all in the same box um I, I've seen athletes sometimes who will train when they're injured. You know, they wouldn't yeah. let their dog go out running if it had got an injured foot, but they would go out running. If it was their mother, they'd tell them to stay at home, but they'd go out and do it. And I and I wonder sometimes whether this is almost like a self-harming behaviour. And if we saw somebody cutting their wrists or, you know, making marks on their skin, we'd, we'd, we'd ask them if they needed help. But when we do this ourselves when we're training when we're injured, we think it's entirely natural because we excuse it as, oh, well, I'm training for an event. Um, yeah. Um, and so I definitely recognize all those things about the personality types. And I, I, I've also seen athletes that, uh, you know, it's very obvious to me and, and with some of them, I've had conversations that they, the training is their way of running away from something else and hence the, the whole mental health things. And you can definitely see this for those folks who, for instance, have an injury which stops them training. How they just disappear into their shell, and you don't you don't actually see them for a bit. And 
you know, you have to pick up the phone and or send them an email and just check that they're okay. Um, and I think yeah. that perhaps as in in terms of coach education, we don't pay enough we don't pay enough attention to um, to helping coaches to recognise the problems that might be developing. Yeah, and if you know, if you identify, if you think your identity is that of an athlete. Um, so you identify yourself as an athlete rather than as a person with all sorts of interest and, and things going on in his life, then you're you're really at risk because then if you can't train if you're injury injury, then what is left? You know, who are you when you um when things don't go well? Um so we don't really talk enough about that aspect um of our sport, especially at, at elite level or a serious competitive level. But there is a whole group of um, very healthy triathletes who are participants, you know, who enjoy what they're doing. They know they're never going to be any good uh, in in relation to being competitive, but they just love the, the being fit and being healthy. Mm. And so that's a big part of our sport as well. And I often look at those people and I admire them. I'm now probably one of them, you know, because Me I've too. joined them. Because I'm not competitive anymore. And actually, it's bloody good, you know. So um, we don't have to stop when we can't compete anymore. We can just adjust. But also you say, well, when you have a sore foot, you still go out training. The good thing about triathlon is when you get injured, you can often still train, you know. So if you have a sore foot, you can swim. You might still be able to bike. Mm -hmm. So uh, with especially with those addicted athletes, the series age groupers and, and the elites, I find a way that they can keep on doing something. Mm -hmm. um, and I think that's an important part of, of the rehabilitation program. You, you mentioned that you'd had atrial fibrillations. I've, I've known a lot of athletes that have that. I'm, a, I'm actually involved in a, a research program at the moment. I have this little monitor implanted into my chest here. Um, and oh, wow. they, are trying, they are trying to discover um, reasons why um, older athletes get develop heart problems. And so this thing monitors my heart rate. 24 7 and the doctors can see it and if there's a an atrial fibrillation they'll can they'll contact me and ask me what symptoms i'm experiencing um and there's a hundred of us that have these little implants um and so that's my little bit to try and help those other folks that uh just to understand why that is and what what the mechanisms are um how, good on you. how do you how do you manage that in yourself now you know is it has it been totally cured or do you have to um uh, uh, do you have to and have you had to make adjustments to your lifestyle and stress management and nutrition? Yeah, um, I ignored it for a while um, because it was what we call paroxysmal. So it would come and go, but then it would come at the most inconvenient times. Um, the last time I, I had it was at the World Champs on the Gold Coast in 2018. And um I was all ready to race and, and I was second out of the water in my age group and I thought I'm in for a good one. And I stood up and bang, I knew I felt dizzy and I couldn't breathe and I thought, oh, shit, this is no good. And I walked to my bike and I thought this will this will go away in a moment, but it didn't. <laughs> so I went on my bike and I thought I'll do a lap and see how I go. And then I did this lap and everybody passed me and then we had to do two laps. I thought I might as well do another lap. So then another lap. So after 40K, I came off the bike way back in the field. And I thought, what do I do now? I thought I might as well finish this bloody thing. And so I started jogging. Uh, I could hardly jog. I walked, jogged. And uh, there was an, an elderly American female 
triathletes. Uh, she had 80 plus on her legs. She was in the 80 plus age group and she came limping by. <laughs> and she looked at me and she said to me in her American drawl, she said, are you all right? And I sort of looked at her. Uh, um, she was hanging all crooked, but she was still going faster than me. And um, I, I sort of nodded. I said, yes, I'm fine. And she said, that's what they always ask me. <laughs> so um, uh, then that's when I knew I was in trouble. Um, so that's when I uh, sought help after that. And I tried medication for a while. And that didn't really do the trick. So I had a, a few cardioversions where they stop and start your heart. Mm -hmm. And that didn't last either. So then I had an ablation mm -hmm. where they, uh, they do a wee procedure. And it's been pretty good ever since, really. Um, but I know I, it feels when I exercise now, I'm not at full capacity. Um, but um, And I'll take some medication as well for blood pressure. And that's not because I'm unhealthy, but I blame my father for that. It's a genetic thing. It's in the family. Mm -hmm. So and that, and that medication slows me down a bit as well. So when we get older, we need to uh, deal and manage those events uh, which meet us. And, and what I've learned is we... Also, with my triathlon mates, they hit a time where they have to decide, okay, am I going to carry on or am I going to give up because I get things wrong with me. And then when things go wrong with you, you don't really enjoy what you're doing anymore because you don't feel good, you don't, you fall back, you don't perform anymore. So you, you're lost. So you think, ah, oh, perhaps, it, you know, I, I shouldn't do this anymore. So then you have to make a decision and adjust. So that's a process where you say, okay, I really still want to do something. So let's see what I can do and how I can do it. And then you get to work and slowly it will come back, but it's at a different level, you know. So, mm. um, and I think I had this discussion with Gordo Byrne as well, who's come back after mm -hmm. a 20 year layoff. You know, he was an elite. I'm an athlete, didn't do much in the meantime. He kept fit, but that was about it. And now he's making a comeback as a triathlete. And he finds things are not the same. Things happen to his body, which he's not expecting. So he can either say, well, obviously um, I'm past it. Or he says, okay, I'll need to manage this. And managing that process can be quite fun, especially when that works. And in nine out of 10 cases, it will work. Um, you know, you just have to adjust your attitude and adjust the way you approach your training. Mm. Yeah, and that adjustment to training, I think, is something that is going to happen to us all, whether we like it or not, with age, um, life circumstances, etc. And so I wondered if we could spend the last part of the uh, conversation, John, talking about some maybe some of the adjustments that you've made. You, you've talked about some of them, um, not, not just with your training, but maybe things that you've done with your nutrition um you know we we do hear in the popular press that as you get older your body can't tolerate this more or you need a little bit more protein or you need to have, you need to take in a bit more of this or a little bit less of that um and i i like with our coaches i like to use this thing called the traffic light system so red red amber green so red is the stuff you've stopped doing um amber is the stuff that you might continue doing and green is the stuff that you might start doing as you get older so can, can we just Maybe, maybe we'll talk about you a little bit, and then maybe we can use your your medical knowledge to talk about what the wider group of listeners might uh, might want to consider. Yeah, I, I can probably say what my experience is. One of the things I've learned is that everybody ages differently. You know, like we know that everybody responds to training differently. 
um, but we all age differently. So there's not one way of training when you get older. Um, and I find that they are athletes who age um, um, quite and, and who are able to train um, quite well up to a very old age, um, including doing high-intensity training. Mm. Um, so that has to do with genetics. It also has to do with body build. You know, like I'm 78 kilogram, I'm 184. So I'm a reasonably big guy for a triathlete. So that means that I probably that affects my my aging as far as my exercise is concerned. When you're a bit more compact, when you're light and a bit smaller, uh, it's easier to move against gravity um, because we do lose our strength. And I need to use more strength to move than someone who's 10 kilograms lighter than me. So we've got very individual aging process. So my experience will not be your experience or somebody else's experience. But um, what I've found is that um, I probably do not do any high-intensity training. I do not do Z5 training. Uh, I uh, get hardly in the Z4 zone. So 99% of what I do is in the aerobic zones, zone one, two, and three. Mm -hmm. And the good thing is you can enjoy those zones, you know. So zone four and five are always painful. Mm-hmm. Um, and I don't do them also because they're painful, but be also because I pull muscles. And I generally don't feel good doing it. When I was younger and I did it, I'd, I'd, it was painful, but it also gave me a lift. So I felt good doing it and felt good afterwards. Now I feel lousy, feel lousy doing it, but also feel lousy afterwards. So I've probably put a red light to high-intensity training. And now even when I race, <laughs> when I race, I go Z3, perhaps Z4 when somebody passes me, I get pissed off. And then I have to very soon go back into Z3. Um, so that's the biggest adjustment I had to make. And I had to make a decision, do I want to do this? And my answer in the end was, yes, I do want to still want to do this. I want to be a participant also because it's good for my health. Uh, Nutrition-wise, I eat less, but that's not that difficult because I don't train so much. So I do overall, I train less. Probably I do three sessions per discipline per week in a good week. When I was elite, I did um, four or five sessions a week as an age grouper. I looked at um, training up for an event, four sessions per discipline per week, at least, and some of them were pretty solid. Uh, Now I do three sessions per discipline a week, and they're all aerobic. and I do them for health. And then every now and then I do an event. And I've at an event I don't go much faster than you know than than Z3, basically. And um so 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 nutrition-wise, I eat less. I'm married to a dietitian, um, <laughs> to a sports dietitian. So um my nutritional habits have never been um great. Um, but because I trained so much, I got away with it. So I have a bit of a sweet tooth. And um, unfortunately, I like the the, the fatty foods, but I try and manage that more so. Now I'm older because I don't get away with with it anymore. Um, And I eat less calories. That's not so difficult because I'm not that hungry anymore. For for me, there hasn't been a a, a big adjustment. Um, My biggest adjustment has been my mental attitude towards, you know, going going from being a competitor to be a, a participant. And that's been taking 
you know, a few years. There wasn't a few months. It's been a few years. Um, but I'm I'm happily landed now. I uh, that's always an interesting discussion that I've had with professional athletes as they're exiting the sport and moving into another part of their career. Is how do they deal with that mentally? You know, um, a lot of them don't don't continue to race as age groupers. Some of them come back, um, but realizing you're not as fast, fast as you used to be, and that other people are beating you now, it's. Um, I think again, I don't think we consider as much um, how we're going to handle that change. And it comes back to that um, identity uh, situation yeah. you talked about before us. If you identify as an athlete and you don't have that, then you're a bit lost. But if you have lots of other stuff occupying your life and you identify as a human being who just loves exercise, I think that makes life a lot uh, a lot easier. I, I, have, I have a yeah. friend who he... he he lives in a small village and he he says in, in the village, people know him as Bob, the mad cyclist or Bob, the mad triathlete. And so he, he's sort of taken on that identity as this triathlete. And when he was injured and he couldn't do that, he's, he's thinking, well, what do people think I am now? Because they identify with me as, as this triathlete. And he'd started to. Um, yeah. So which brings me to the question then, John, what outside of all of this activity you do, um, are you still working as a doctor? Do you still have a practice where you, where you, where you treat normal people? I retired at Christmas, so uh, I thought age 70, that's enough. But I'm still pretty uh, involved with coaching. I'm involved with the uh, tri tri Triathlon New Zealand High Performance Program. I'm part of the coaching group. I coach um, uh, two or three guys. I coach Dylan McCulloch and Saxon Morgan, who are um, World Series uh, triathletes. Um, uh, I coach a young athlete, a becoming athlete, um, and I work with other coaches. So um, I do quite a bit of writing. I write for uh, Endurance Essentials, Cordell Burns, um, you know, uh, cyberspace publication. <laughs> um, and I really enjoy that. Uh, I've got a lot of chats with him. He's pretty clever about training. Um, he, he came to Christchurch when he became a triathlete mm. and he'd been an overweight uh, financial consultant in Hong Kong, didn't like the lifestyle, came to Christchurch and um, decided to become a professional triathlete. And within a couple of years, I kid you not, he was a professional triathlete competing, mm. um, you know, in Ironman events and usually ending up in the top 10, if not the top five. Um, so he learned very quickly. He was a very quick learner. and. Um, he talks to coaches and people and and applies the stuff he learns and applies it uh, with a lot of intelligence. Um, and now he writes about it in a substack prolifically. And um, I sort of uh, joined him in doing that and uh, and support him in that way. Yeah. Oh, so, yeah. I'm I'm still uh, pretty occupied. I've got I've got four grandkids. Um, so I really enjoy that. Um, side of things. If I'd known before, then I would have started with grandkids um, uh, rather than with kids. But um, <laughs> so life's still pretty full. I think as a doctor, John, you probably know that without the kids, you can't get to the grandkids. Is that so? <laughs> the um, the do, are you familiar with Malcolm Brown, um, the running coach from the UK? Worked with the Brownleys. Yes. Well, I'm, I don't know him personally, but I know his name. Yeah. Malcolm and I talk a lot, and I think Malcolm and you are pretty similar um, age group. And um, 
we talk about this this whole situation where uh, with a lot of coaches, uh, particularly those who've got a lot of experience and have worked at the highest level, they're often put out to pasture when they get to a certain age. And um, I think that's a, that's almost a criminal thing for the, the, the coaching world to do because there's so much knowledge there that whilst they may not be working at that high level, there's so much knowledge that they can still be mentors and elders and, and guide people. And, you know, if you read, read books about Ikigai and some of the, the Japanese cultures, um, yeah. The older folks are not ignored. They're still valued and included in society, which gives them purpose as well. And I guess from your interactions with coaches and working with high-performance athletes and high-performance coaches, even though you retired from your medical work, it gives you, and the grandchildren, it gives you a sense of purpose every day when you get up, um, which comes back to that mental health aspect. Uh, You're very right. And and I'm lucky I'm still (laughs) tolerated uh, by the younger coaches there is, you know, it. this is what I also mean by culture. You know, the, the culture within triathlon is still pretty loose and we can learn from other sports, more established sports. Um, I learn a lot from martial arts. Martial arts has a lot of respect within the, within their culture, including respect for the older coaches. Um, and, uh, I, yeah, I'm, I'm pretty lucky with, with the current group of young coaches, which we have. Um, and who who um, welcomed me and and also um, yeah at times asked me questions. Um, so, but what I what I'm interested in too is how much coaching has changed over mm-hmm. time. You know, from twenty thirty years ago when we were quite authoritative and we would say to Italy, "This is what you do," and the athletes wouldn't question it and do it. And every now and then there would be a confrontation. And then we either split up or or we get on with it. Um, Now it's a lot more democratic. And um, so there's a lot of communication. There's a lot of listening. Um, So and and in particular in our sport, it's been a very dynamic sport. There's been something new in training or in technology. Every year there's something new. And now... There's the culture, which is, you know, taking our interest and which is new for our sport, which we need to do something with. Um, and so, yeah, that, that's where part of my current interest is. Um, how can we work together better, you know, within our sport? Mm. Yeah, I love that. How can we work together better? Um, and it, and it, is, it is very collaborative. And I, I think that, uh, you know, when I first started off, um, not just in triathlon coaching. I had a personal training business to start with. And then, I, then as I said, I, I went and worked with professional rugby league and professional cricket. And I also worked as a as a strength advisor for athletes in a um, whole range of different sports, from kayaking to golf to badminton. And it was like there were lots of silos. that Every coach was in their little silo and they had these yeah. little secrets and they didn't want to share yeah. them in case somebody stole their ideas. And I think what what... Another way that I've noticed coaching's changed is that there's a lot more sharing now. There's a lot more understanding yeah. that, you know, even though there are five coaches working with an athlete, we're actually all there for the good of that athlete. And in order to do that, we need to collaborate and share our ideas rather than think that we're the one that's got the secret to their success. 
Yeah. Uh, and the problem with that is that there can be too many voices, uh-huh. you know, and that's what we need to learn to manage. You know, how do we get a culture that we speak with one voice, um, you know, without taking the, the the discussion away from, you know, what is best for the athlete? Um, so but but working together uh, can be very powerful, uh, can be a very powerful thing. I think if you look at the way that the All Blacks run their coaching and coaching culture, they always pretty much always know who's who's next in line to the throne. And yeah. um, it's all about the All Blacks, isn't it? It's not about the coach. It's not about the, the coaches and about their stardom. It's about the All Blacks and the country and the the, the tradition and the, um, yeah, the power of that group, of the, of the fern, yes. of the silver fern. Yeah, no, no, you're quite right. If we if we can apply only about half of that culture to our sport, we'll make a, a lot of headway. Um, yeah, so I learn a lot from rugby in New Zealand. Yeah. Well, jo- Dr. John Hellemans, it's it's been a fascinating discussion. I'm I'm so grateful and and appreciative of you coming on the show. Thank you very very much for sharing your wisdom and your time with us today. Uh, I'm sure this is going to be a really popular podcast, and maybe we can resume another time and chat about more of that other stuff I asked you about. Yeah, sure. Thanks very much for having me. It's been an absolute pleasure. Take care. All right. You're welcome. Thank you again to John Hellemans for being my guest on the show this week. To make sure you don't miss any one of my episodes in the future, please go to iTunes, search for High Performance Human Triathlon Podcast and click on the subscribe button. And if you have time, We'd love it if you can leave us a review on Apple Podcasts because that does make a huge difference to our rankings. Please also keep in mind our partnership with Precision Fuel and Hydration, which gets you a 15% discount on your first order. Going forward, you'll regularly hear the founder, Andy Blow, or one of his colleagues on the show sharing some of their latest insights or answering your questions. And on this last point, if you have a sports nutrition question that you're dying to have the answer to, please send it in to me via beth at triathloncoach.com and we'll get back to you with an answer, the best of which will be aired on this show. For all the things that I've mentioned above, please check out the show notes where you can find links for those items. That's all for this week. Thanks again for being here and I'll see you on the next episode.